welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craft for life. Thank you so much for visiting this corner of the internet and exploring the musings and objects in my cabinet of curiosities. To all returning listeners, thank you for coming back. To all new listeners, welcome, and I hope you enjoy this podcast in which I explore my love of natural materials and the act of making, and in which I mull over how I best try to navigate the tension between my love of making and my environmental and ethical concerns. As always, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with an underscore in between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg aka Mrs M, and that is with a hyphen between each word. I will link all this information and everything I mention in the show in the show notes, which are available on my blog, mrsmscuriositycabinet.com, or in the Ravelry group of the same name. First of all, thank you for your wonderful feedback on my last two episodes, in which I explored the issues of affordability and waste in making. I've enjoyed reading how you manage costs when resourcing materials with a kind of provenance, and how you avoid waste. I'm delighted that my musings prompted some of you to revisit unloved knits, tackle unfinished sewing projects, and find new uses for old materials. So, what do I have in store today? I'll be sharing a couple of recent knits that highlight one of the ways I try to balance cost with my love of working with local natural wools. I'll also be talking a bit more about my wool pantry, as well as announcing the winner of the Daughter of a Shepherd giveaway. And finally, there will be a couple of notes from my kitchen. Before I begin, I've been taking a little break from my sock experiment, as a daft accident triggered a shoulder injury which has left me with RSI in my left hand. Fortunately, I can still knit, just not with fine needles, so I'm having an enforced rest from socks. I do, however, have a couple of snippets on the issue of no-nylon socks that may be of interest. I recently saw that Rosa Pomar, the owner of the Retrosaria yarn shop in Lisbon, Portugal, stocks a nylon-free, non-superwashed sock yarn made from 100% Portuguese wool. The yarn is called Mondim, that's M-O-N-D-I-M, and is named after a village that was once famous for its sock knitting cottage industry. Rosa developed this wool as she was trying to find a locally sourced sock yarn. It comes in 100 gram balls, which gives you about 385 metres, I think that's approximately 400 yards, and retails at 9 euros. I have not tried the Mondim yarn, but I thought it might be of interest to any listeners based in Iberia or France who are looking for a localish source of nylon-free sock yarn. I will leave a link to it in the show notes if you are interested. On the topic of nylon-free socks, I also learned that the ladies behind the new knitting publication company Making Stories are planning a volume devoted to nylon-free, non-superwashed socks. You can find Making Stories at www.making-stories.com. It is the brainchild of Verena Kors, aka The Wool Club on Ravelry and Instagram, and Hannah-Lisa Hafferkampf, aka Hannah on the Road, and Hannah is spelt H-A-N-N-A. The aim of these ladies is not just to publish knitting patterns, but to highlight the wealth of natural wools available in Europe. Their first publication, Woods, which was crowdfunded and goes on general release on the 4th of November, illustrates how they are doing this. They are producing publications which combine restrained, some might say minimalist patterns, with beautiful wools. I understand that the call for submissions for the sock publication has now closed and that the book will be out next year. 
I, for one, am very excited. It will be grand to see the idea of no nylon, non-superwash socks mainstreamed again. So, to my knitting. Instead of knitting socks, I have been finding comfort in shawl knitting, and more to the point, knitting with wools that are like balm for the hands and the soul. Two recent projects really reflect one of the ways I balance my love of supporting local wool producers with cost. I am increasingly knitting more slowly so I can savour the wool and the knitting experience, and doubly so when a wool is particularly delectable. I am aware that slowing down my knitting speed might seem contrary. We so often hear that this or that pattern is a quick knit, or that people are switching to continental knitting to speed up their knitting speed. Projects flying off the needle seems to be a virtue, so me choosing to work more slowly probably makes me sound odd. But I am not alone in taking it slowly. Nearly a third of the answers to the giveaway question involve some reference to time, be it speed of knitting or equating the hours of pleasure one can derive from one skein of wool. I was surprised and delighted to hear how many people, including Bethy Forty, Saratoga Knitting and Mari Punk, have turned to spinning. They often do so in order to access local or less processed wool, but they also talk about how much enjoyment they derive from making accessories and garments from hand-spun yarn. And they are not put off by the extra time it takes to make something. In fact, they talk in terms of getting more hours of enjoyment for the funds spent. In the same vein, a number of knitters, including Karelia and Flickstrick, talk about knitting with finer yarns to balance the cost of sourcing more sustainable wool. I know that to some the thought of knitting a garment in lace weight or four-ply wool is unpalatable, but it is definitely a way of stretching the budget. And I am deeply in awe of Josh Moll, who hand-sews garments, Alabama Challenge style. She buys organic jersey which she dyes and makes the appliques from thrifted t-shirts. Hand-stitched applique garments really is slow making. I thought I'd talk in a little more detail about two shawls I recently finished knitting, and not just because the wool between the fingers actively encouraged me to slow down. It's all good and well to talk about wool in the skein, but having now worked with these two blends and wearing the finished items, I feel I can give a more detailed review of the wools, which may be of interest to others. The first yarn shawl combination involved Blacker's St Kilda Laceweight wool, which I used for Carrie Westerman's Horner shawl. This pattern is from a collection called Doggerland, Knits from a Lost Landscape. I bought this yarn in the dark natural shade at Edinburgh Yarn Festival specifically for this pattern. I am planning to make all the shawls in this collection, but it is taking me a while to knit them. This is not because I am distracted by the latest new thing, but rather because for each shawl I want to use a yarn that will not only complement the pattern, but also which has some ancientness about it. I want to capture some of the ancientness of the lost land that was almost certainly inhabited during the Mesolithic period. My first knit from this collection was a Storegger, which I knit in Shetland wool that I dyed in Madder. For the second project, I picked Blacker's St Kilda blend. This includes Borare and Soye, two ancient and incredibly rare sheep breeds that were native to the St Kilda archipelago and which have been mixed with Shetland wool. The Fleece and Fibre source book lists Borare and Soye as having an average micron count of 23 to 32 and 29 to 36 respectively, but acknowledges that in reality the range is much wider. 
In fact, traditionally on St Kilda, the finest soe wool was used for underwear, while the thicker wool was used for tweeds. Borore tends to be creamy white, tan, grey or even occasionally dark brown, while soe is a medium to dark brown. The overall blend is a lovely warm grey or greyish brown, so right up my street. The St Kilda blend is definitely a rustic yarn, more so than Shetland, yet still very soft. And while it has a crisp feel, I didn't find it uncomfortable to knit with or to wear around my neck. Quite the contrary. The Rohrnest shawl has a long, thin, slightly crescent-shaped body and an applied lace border, all knit in garter stitch. The pattern recommends a cobweb weight yarn and 4.5mm or US 7 needles, but I used lace weight and a slightly heavier one at 350m or 380 yards per 50 grams and used 5mm needles. By the way, the cost of 50 grams of this wool is £12.60. Now, garter stitch is not my favourite stitch. I don't mind knitting it, but I don't generally enjoy the texture of whole swathes of it. That said, something happened after the first inch or so of knitting. I absolutely fell for the fabric this wool produced. The woolen spun St Kilda blend produces a lofty wool that has an inviting crisp. Not a hard crunch, more like the crispy, cloudy, ephemeral feel of a gentle snowfall. As my hands turned the yarn into fabric, my fingers slowed down so I could enjoy it for as long as possible. By the time I started on the applied border, which was inspired by fish scales, I made the decision to ration myself to two repeats a day so I could eke out the enjoyment of working with this wool. Once finished, I blocked the wool slightly as I didn't want to lose any of the lofty snow cloud feeling and I have been wearing it on and off since. The wool contained in this shawl may contain primitive, even ancient breeds, but around my neck the shawl feels cosily robust. And whilst the garter stitch offers protection against chills, the fabric does not have the chainmail quality I often associate with garter stitch. My Rawness shawl started off very comfortable, but I'm already experiencing that lovely transformation you get with certain wools, like Shetland, of it improving with each wear. St Kilda Laceweight is definitely a wool that starts off gorgeous and wears better and better. The second shawl that I knit as slowly as possible was the Tales of Purbeck shawl by Annie Rowden. For this one I used Uist Wool's Brehach DK, a Shetland textile blend which costs £18 for 100 grams, or 240 metres, approximately 260 yards. This wool was also an Edinburgh Yarn Festival purchase, once again specifically bought with this pattern in mind, and I talked at length about this in my first episode. Texel is a medium wool with an average micron count of 28 to 33. The breed was developed by crossing the native sheep of Texel, the large Frisian island off North Holland, with Lincoln and Leicester long wools. Texels are primarily a meat breed, and as such the wool is considered a secondary crop, but its white wool lends itself well to socks, sweaters and blankets, according to the Fleece and Fibre source book. Uist Wool blended this wool with Shetland to produce a lovely yarn in a shade that reminds me of the crumb of a multigrain loaf a semi-solid brown that is more fawn than morid. When working with this woolen spun yarn, it feels a little tweedy from the mixing of the different breeds. Not tweedy as in the nylon tweed nets that are sometimes blended with merino sock yarn, but more like Jameson's DK or Blacker's West Country tweed. The reference I made just now to bread applies equally to the feel of the fabric this wool produces. 
It is soft in a hearty way, like the delicious chewy crumb of a fresh malt house loaf. Once again, as much as I wanted to wrap myself in this tweedy loveliness, I paced myself to enjoy the process of turning this unusual wool into knitted fabric. The Tales of Purbeck is a large triangle shawl, softened by the lace pattern. The pattern reminds me of spent poppy seed heads, those little round cages topped with a crown where the poppy stamens once were. I actually found a couple in my garden this week whilst doing some autumn tidying, so I will include a photo in the show notes. The pattern meant the shawl needed to be blocked quite heavily to show the lace off, but the wool coped with this beautifully. If my Rona's shawl is a gentle shawl to keep the wind off my throat, my Tales of Purbeck shawl is a vast one that makes me feel like a Dickensian character trying to keep warm in a drafty home. In episode 89 of the Knit British podcast, Dana McPhee, the director of Uist Wool, talked about how she feels when handing over wool to a customer and joked that she hopes that knitters and crocheters take care of it. Well, Dana, I can reassure you, I took care of your lovely Uist wool and it has grown up to be a warm, comforting hug of a shawl. In fact, when I cast off the last stitch, I didn't pick up any knitting for a couple of days. I didn't want to charge into casting something else on or picking up another sweater knit. I wanted to enjoy the feeling of working with this wool for a little longer. Not only did this wool slow my knitting speed, it also tempered my knitting rate because I wanted to digest what this wool was what fabric it could create, what I might use it for again, what similar characteristics I might seek out in future wools. Just as with a good meal, I wanted to savour the flavour of this wool before rushing to dessert or a cheese course, no matter how lovely those might be. Staying with the topic of wool, I thought I would share some reflections on my wool pantry. In recent months, there has been a lot of talk about stashes and our feelings about them. I have heard tales of people feeling guilty about their stash and even hiding new purchases from their other half. There is even a book about stash, a stash of one's own, Knitters on Loving, Living With and Letting Go of Yarn, an anthology edited by Clara Parks. All makers, whatever our medium, will have a number of supplies. Many factors influence our perspectives on the stock and tools we invest in, how much of them we keep on hand, how long we keep or how quickly we use them, as well as how we talk about them. As a knitter, as well as somebody concerned about environmental and social justice issues and fascinated by the psychology of sustainable consumption, how do I reconcile the concept of a stash with my outlooks and values? First of all, I have to admit, I really struggle with the word stash. I dislike it for both linguistic and psychological reasons. The primary meaning of the noun stash, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is a store or supply of something, typically one that is kept hidden or secret. The meaning of the verb is to store something safely in a hidden or secret place. So, whether you're looking at the noun or the verb, it has an overtone of clandestine behaviour about it, rather than of celebrating what is stored. If, as knitters, we love yarn, why would we choose or adopt a term that has distinct clandestine overtones, one that hints at hiding the medium we love, at enjoying it in secret, at feeling guilty about it? This just strikes me as odd. I therefore choose not to use the word stash. Yes, I have some wool supplies, but I think of them in terms of my wool pantry. I could have used other terms that hint at a collection, like wool library, archive, museum, chest, treasury, 
but pantry just feels more appropriate to me, and not just because I often describe wool by reference to food. Rather, Wool Pantry touches upon both the psychology of why I keep a modest store of wool and what mix you are likely to find in my wool pantry at any given time. Some environmentalists tend towards extreme minimalism, only having what they need in their home. I am not one of them. I struggle with unnecessary abundance, absolutely, but I also recognise the innate human need to be able to provide for ourselves in the fallow months. Yes, I live in the 21st century in a country that has corner shops, supermarkets and online shopping, but tell that to my human instincts, which are the product of centuries of evolution in times of scarcity. Even though I know I can get frozen peas in winter and jams of every flavour all year round, every year, around about late August, I get the overwhelming urge to pickle and jam, and it continues for weeks. This could be blamed on the gluts I get in my tiny garden in a good year, but I've had this instinct for decades, long before I gardened. It's as if part of my makeup has an almost visceral urge to lay in supplies for winter. So it is with food, but also with wool. And just as with food, I don't want too much in store, enough to help me psychologically survive fallow times, but not so much that it will spoil, or in the case of wool, become fodder for moths. For me, enough wool seems to be about a year's worth of wool. Whilst others may have a different sense of what constitutes enough, I suspect that for many of us, the desire to lay down some supplies is innately human. It's almost like a subconscious memory of surviving in times when humans had to rely mostly on their own activities and skills to feed, clothe and home themselves. What then are you likely to find in my ever-changing wool pantry? The majority of the items are staples, mostly natural shades like West Yorkshire Spinner's Jacob's DK or Laxton's BFL Mash and Blend, or a cone of Jameson and Smith's Shetland Yarn or a sweater's quantity of Blacker's Classic Blend. These are like the grains and pulses in my food pantry. The coloured balls of Jameson Spindrift or my now dwindling supply of West Yorkshire Spinner Signature 4 ply sock yarn are like the stock cubes, the Worcester sauce, vinegars and herbs and spices, the items that add a dash of colour or interest to meals. Then there are a few indulgences, like the Little Grey Sheep's Gotland or the Knitting Goddess's One Farm Yarn. These would be like a jar of cherries in kirsch for an occasional decadent dessert or the preserved lemons that lift a tagine. At a reading from A Stash of One's Own, Clara Parks dismissed the idea of stash as a pantry as just a collection of ingredients to be turned into items because a stash of wool also holds memories of place and people. I know exactly what she meant, but I suspect that that observation was more of a reflection of how some people might view a food pantry or larder. My pantry holds memories of people, place, times and emotions, just as my wool pantry does. My daughter of a shepherd yarn is just like my attic blossom honey, a memory of inspiring people I met on a delightful trip. My skein of Baram U Titus in a deep rust colour makes me think of the generous friend who gave it to me just because it was exactly my colour. Just like the jar of grape jelly reminds me of a good friend who shared some of her first grape harvest with me in the form of jam. For the environmentalist in me, though, the key is that all the items in my wool pantry, just like those in my food pantry, are meant to be used, incorporated, transformed into something that makes life better. The skeins of wool in my wool pantry are lovely in their own right, but they are not artefacts in a museum or archive to be taken out occasionally and admired. Land, water, animals, chemicals, human skills, 
electricity and machinery, all of these things went into producing them. And if these walls aren't ultimately used, then those resources are wasted. I'm aware that this view of Stash is that of a maker who looks at materials through an environmental prism. It's by no means the only prism, of course, but it is equally valid as any other. So is there a place for guilt in my wall pantry? Knowing why I keep supplies, what I intend to use them for, and treating my wool pantry as a revolving store helps keep guilt at bay. That's not to say that there aren't tensions. As soon as we start to mull over the social and environmental implications of our choices, there will always be dilemmas and concerns about making the right choice. Nothing is environmentally or ethically neutral, not even natural yarns. Every choice involves balancing pros and cons. Informed choices can be time-consuming, which brings me to the very valid point Claudery made. Our time is also a resource, and we often don't have the luxury of unlimited time to research the origins of stuff to the nth degree, so we make decisions based on our best knowledge at any given time. And that's perfectly fine. Muddling through and navigating dilemmas as best I can pretty much sums up my life. The tensions remain, but they are not the same as guilt. And I don't necessarily see living with such tensions as a bad thing. They actually mean I'm conscious of the complexities of our material world and global society. They are evidence of my interest in wool as a medium, as a shaper of landscape, as a means of livelihood, as a source of warmth, as a creative expression, and so on. Well, after these musings about my wool pantry, it's about time I announced the winner of the Daughter of a Shepherd giveaway. There were 28 entries in the Ravelry group, so I plugged in numbers 2 to 28 into Random Org Number Generator, and it chose number 8, which is Betha Forty, or Becca, who's based in Glasgow in Scotland. Becca wrote a very thoughtful answer that includes lots of food for thought. For one, as she has many walls already, she uses spinning as her main way of sourcing new walls of a known provenance. She comments that it's even easier to find responsibly sourced fibre than yarn. This is a comment quite a few spinners have made. What is more, she spins on spindles rather than a wheel, so she really is acquiring new yarn very slowly. She also talks about how she manages the cost of supporting local mills and farmers, whose products might be more pricey. She might only buy one or two skeins worth of wool or fibre and combine them with a more workhorse yarn. And like me, she avoids bulky yarns or all-over cables for sweaters and saves those for accents like hats. So congratulations, Becca. Please send me your address via Ravelry and I'll get the skein of Daughter of a Shepherd yarn and tote bag off to you as soon as possible. And once again, thank you to Rachel of A Daughter of a Shepherd for sponsoring this giveaway. And a warm thank you to everybody who took the time to share their suggestions and thoughts on this topic. So, after all that talk of my wool pantry, I thought I would share some notes from my kitchen, because in recent weeks I've been answering that visceral urge to lay down stocks of preserves. This year has been a bit of a mixed year in the vegetable garden. I'm still harvesting beetroots and cucumbers, but our beans were ravaged by a legion of slugs and the blight got our tomatoes. Mercifully, the potato blight didn't strike, so we do have some potatoes for the coming months. Although my own tomatoes were lost, I did buy some organic ones to make chutney, as it's one of our staple preserves. This year, as well as spicy tomato chutney flavoured with mixed spice and ginger, I also made some red onion chutney. I tend to take quite a relaxed approach to recipes for chutneys and pickles, that is, 
pickles in the British sense. I stick to the ratio of fruit or vegetables to sugar and vinegar that Marguerite Patton recommends in her jams, preserves and chutneys handbook, but I don't get too hung up on the actual makeup of the fruit and vegetable mix. I didn't have enough sultanas for the tomato chutney recipe, so I made up the difference with dried apricots this year. And for the onion chutney, I used a blackberry vinegar rather than red wine vinegar, as it's what I happen to have in my pantry. I have also been making plum jam, another pantry staple in our home, with some plums I foraged topped up with others from the local greengrocers. Making preserves or even soups out of foraged food is always particularly pleasing. We don't like our jam too sweet, so I reduced the recommended amount of sugar by about 10% by adding a couple of time-tested ingredients at the rolling boil stage of jam making. I crack the plum stones and pop these together with the peelings from the apple that went into the mincemeat in some muslin. Both are high in pectin, so by adding them at the thickening stage, the jam gets the benefit of some extra pectin to help it set with a little less sugar. Finally, I also made some mincemeat this year. It's impossible to make this in small quantities, so I usually only make it every other year. We don't use it till Christmas Eve, but it needs at least 10 weeks to mature and will improve if kept longer, which is why one batch lasts a couple of years. Mincemeat is one of those things that people either love or loathe. It has been documented in the British Isles since at least the 15th century. Although it originally contained meat as well as dried fruit and spices, the only nod to meat these days is the shredded suet. I'm not sure to what extent shredded suet is used outside the British Isles. When I was growing up, Mum relied on friends sending a pack of suet along with property and other ingredients from the home country. It's basically raw beef fat from around the kidneys and loins. That said, I used vegetable suet made from organic palm oil, but you could also use shortening that you've frozen and grated. Of course, even organic palm oil isn't an environmentally neutral product, but I allow us half a pound of vegetable suet once every two years, as mince pies are a real treat, in the true meaning of the word. Making your own mincemeat is actually a no-brainer, as it is incredibly easy to make, and apparently tastes much better than commercial mincemeat. Well, according to Mr M it is. As the shop-bought stuff contains nuts, I've only ever had homemade mincemeat, so I don't really have anything to compare it against. But it is very easy to make, and whilst technically it takes some time, it's very much passive time. My mix is based on the recipe from Delia Smith's Complete Cookery Course, an absolute classic book in the UK, but the recipe is also available free online. Just mix dried fruit, the zest and juice of oranges and lemon, suet, sugar and spices, in particular mixed spice, cinnamon and nutmeg, in a large oven-proof bowl and let it all steep for at least 12 hours. Overnight is ideal. Then pop it in the oven covered with foil for 3-4 to four hours at about 120 centigrades or 225 Fahrenheit. Whilst it gently infuses in the oven, it fills the home with the most glorious smell of winter cosiness. After taking it out of the oven, add a good dash of brandy or your preferred spirit and then pour the mix into sterilised jars and let it mature for several months as it will only get better. We don't touch it till Christmas Eve when I make the first batch of mince pies, which are an absolutely glorious seasonal treat. The kind of thing that really lifts the spirits in the darkest days of winter. Well, with all this talk about food, I'm getting quite peckish, so I will call it a day and make a start on dinner. So, until the next time, I wish you lots of delight in your making, whatever your medium may be.